gentlemen, welcome to Barnflies, a podcast about Shakespeare's extremely high opinion of the efficacy of chastity pledges. This week we'll be discussing Love's Labor's Lost, a comedy in which vows of celibacy result in the usual quotient of unrequited love, unintended pregnancy, and entirely unnecessary peacocking in traditional Russian dress. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 10, Love's Belabored Language. So much, dear liege, I have already sworn, that is, to live and study here three years. But there are other strict observances as not to see a woman in that term, and one day in a week to touch no food, and but one meal on every day besides, and then to sleep but three hours in the night and not be seen to yawn of all the day. Oh, these are barren tasks, too hard to keep, not to see ladies, study, fast, not sleep. Will, can you give us a little background and a plot summary? Written around 1596 for performance before Elizabeth I in the Inns of Court, when Shakespeare was around 30 years old, Love's Labor's Lost opens with the King of Navarre, declaring that he and his three friends, Dumaine, Longueville, and Barone, intend to achieve fame and immortality through withdrawing from the world to study for three years. At the king's instigation, the men swear an oath to avoid any distractions for that time. They will fast, sleep no more than a few hours a night, and will remain celibate, avoiding the company of women. Little did they know that their decision to attend graduate school would deprive them of all three anyway. No woman is to come within a mile of the king's court, but they will receive some relief from the entertainments of Armado, a passionate Spaniard with a gift for telling tales who has come to court. The equivalent, I suppose, of a PhD student borrowing his parents' Netflix password. If you thought that this pledge was unrealistic for four young men with a kingdom to run, dear listener, you are correct. When Armado arrives, he immediately tells the king that a local bumpkin named Costard has had an illicit affair with Jaconetta, the local wench. The king decides to punish Costard for his lack of seriousness by sentencing him to a diet of water and bran under the supervision of Armado. But Armado has a secret of his own. He secretly loves Jaconetta himself and writes a passionate love letter and asks Costard to deliver it. Meanwhile, To introduce more temptation for our noble scholars, the Princess of France arrives with three ladies-in-waiting to negotiate with the king over the status of Aquitaine. The king is enchanted by the princess, but refuses to host her in his castle because of his oath, and makes them pitch a tent in a nearby field. Barone, the man who was the most reluctant to swear the oath to begin with, falls in love with Rosaline, one of the princess's ladies, and asks Castard to deliver a letter to her. But... In a plot twist that no one saw coming, Gassard switches the letter with Armado's, which is why you don't rely on your crush's ex to serve as a go-between. Jaconetta gets Barone's letter and decides to inform the king, but not before the king and all his men secretly observe one another, professing their love for their opposite numbers in the princess's court. The king is angry that his men have already broken their oaths, but is in no position to criticize them because of his own feelings for the princess, as Barone points out, before owning up to writing the love letter. He argues that love is the only subject that is truly worthy of study. The men abandon their oath, and then for reasons that continue to elude me, dress up as a bunch of Russians to woo the women incognito. The princess's aide gets wind of their plan and has the ladies switch identities, 
which eventually makes the men concede that the women have them outmatched. They all then watch Armado, Castard, and several others present a play that depicts the Nine Worthies, including a number of legendary figures who embody chivalry. The lords heckle the performers, only for Armado and Castard to clash mid-show, when Castard reveals that Armado got Jaconetta pregnant. The amusement ends suddenly when a herald arrives to announce that the princess's father, the King of France, has died. An unexpected ending for a comedy. She and her ladies get ready to go home to bury the king and state that the men must wait for a year and a day to show that their love is real and that they can remain faithful. Armado makes a similar oath to Jaconetta, which seems decidedly inconvenient for her since she's going to have a kid well before the time is up. And then serenades the entire cast with a song entitled The Owl and the Cuckoo. Well, I have to say my first question on that fantastic plot summary is, do you think that in the Shakespeare expanded universe, every locality has a local wench? Oh, at least several local wenches and hopefully several local swains or whatever you want to term Castard to provide a little comic relief. What a joy it would be to be but a homely swain, Will. <laughs> uh, you know, for, for a play that is... I found to be mostly frivolous. I think there's actually a good amount to to talk about here. And I I suppose that where I was thinking we would start was that I don't want this to step on our rankings, which we'll do later, but I feel like when I was reading most of the play, I got the distinct sense that basically the point of the existence of this play in terms of why it was written was Shakespeare just being like, let's see how far I can push the wordplay and like how much fun I can have making people say ridiculous things and, like, have exuberant puns and jokes. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the characters are just there to deliver over-the-top monologues that have as much wordplay as can possibly be carried out. I think of Armado in particular is almost this ridiculous character whose soliloquies go on for pages and just are involve intense and overly wordy ways of saying pretty much everything. You know, actually, it, what occurs to me right now, Will, as as we're saying this, is that the whole Armado, Holofernes, Costard, Moth, like there, there's this whole group of lower class people that the play portrays, right? And it feels to me a little bit like it harkens back to Two Gentlemen of Verona, where you had Lance and Speed, who felt like they were completely divorced from the main action of the play. And and actually, I feel like, though they do kind of come together at the end, you know, I feel like there's not that much of a narrative reason for these characters to be here. Do you, what, what do you think about that? No, not really. I don't think there's much of a narrative reason. The play is partially sending up the pretensions of people at court and the tendency to sort of seek highfalutin language to express things that might be a lot more simply said and in some ways a lot more eloquently said in its in their simplicity and so to have some of these characters i think you know you have people that are using jumped up language and then you also have these sort of low characters like castard and they coexist in this space for, for laughs, you know, both the sort of like pretentious lords and learned people, and then also some of the lower humor, pratfalls and cruder jokes that go on throughout the play. I mean, there's definitely a whole bunch of sex jokes 
that Costard, I believe, is involved with for an extended period of time, which is pretty ridiculous on one of these pages. And then at the other end, you have somebody like Armado, who almost exists to take the most roundabout way of saying everything. Well, Armado, yeah, Armado is funny because I feel like there's a lot of these characters in the play who are pushing the wordplay to its extreme. And yet, even they point to Armado as being, you know, he's Armado the braggart. I right. think that's the way he's described in the text, right, as Armado the braggart. And, and so these other characters are constantly making fun of him for his even more aggressive <laughs> efforts at, at making himself sound intelligent, I think is what the idea is. Yes, yeah, yeah. All while he's being constantly upstaged by Moth. His, Moth is his servant. So it actually kind of reminds me of um, in The Sopranos, there's a character named Little Carmine, who's this mafia figure who has pretensions of eloquence, but he's constantly engaging in these ridiculous malapropisms. Like the, he refers to um, something as the sacred and the propane in a, in a conversation <laughs> with Tony Soprano. And there's all these moments of like everybody's looking at this guy saying, wow, what a jackass, you know, like he can't even he's he thinks he's a genius. Or another example is another character picks up uh, the art of war and it goes around recommending Sun Tzu to uh, Tony and the rest of the characters. And you're just like the efforts to, to sometimes come across as eloquent, completely undercut any effort to sound intelligent because you just kind of sound like an ass at the end of the day. And yet Shakespeare does, it does feel like he's making a point in particularly towards that final scene where you have a little bit of a face-off between Holofernes and Armado, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm. And the implication seems to be that, you know, for all that Holofernes is more educated, right? Holofernes is, I think he is actually the, supposed to be the teacher of the king and... Yes. The nobles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But Holofernes is shown to be equally frivolous as Armado. Or maybe not frivolous, but equally caught up in his own myth of his intelligence. Which is kind of the funny thing about the king and his, uh, and his buddies anyway. Because they're making this pledge to engage in serious study. But they're not terribly serious people, as the pledge in and of itself suggests it's not entirely clear what they actually intend to do with their three years of cloistered study. You never really see them have a conversation that indicates that there's any direction to what they want to read about or write. There's just a sense of, wouldn't it we be neat and wouldn't we all be preserved for posterity if we undertake this vow and really devote ourselves to study? And you're, you sort of read that and you're like... Yeah, but what do you intend to do? You guys don't even have a compelling research question to start yeah, your the, research, you the, know? Very early on, there's this conversation about about why they're doing this. And Barone says to the king, what is the end of study? Let me know. And the king says, why that to know, which else we should not know. And to your point, it's, it's not directed at anything specific. This isn't, we are going to retire for three years in order to learn philo like political philosophy and be able to run the kingdom better, which, you know, if, if the king was to adopt that perspective, that would feel like a much more considered and understandable, both process-oriented and goal-oriented approach to his job, which is to be the king, right? Right. Whereas here, it feels like the point is just, 
we're going to get real smart. Yes. And you can even tell, I mean, Shakespeare always signals in the first lines of his plays where he's going, uh, or he has that tendency in many of them. And this is no exception. So the king opens. Let fame that all hunt after in their lives live registered upon our brazen tombs and then grace us in the disgrace of death. When, spite of cormorant devouring time, the endeavor of this present breath may buy that honor which shall bait his side's keen edge and make us heirs of all eternity. So he basically is saying, we got to find some way to achieve immortality and fame and greatness. And he goes on to say, it might as well be studying. And if we take this pledge, it's really going to convince everybody of the seriousness of our endeavor, which is pretty funny. It also kind of reminds me of the, the person who loves to say that they're a writer, but doesn't actually do all that much writing. Yeah. And they're constantly stockpiling the right type of coffee, the right desk, the right laptop, but they don't actually get any work done, which is sort of how these guys come across, is they don't even know what they'd want to say, you know? I mean, I guess to point this to a more direct... Yeah, so you and I both studied history. And there were... Variations of this have happened at, at various times, but the the one that was sort of most on point was I remember it was maybe a year after we graduated and I was getting lunch with a friend of mine and with her sister and her, you know her sister was asking me about what I studied at school and I said I studied history and this this woman looked at me and was like, "Well, why did you do that? Did you just do that to be smart?" <laughs> now, I, I have, as you know, I have a lot of thoughts about the importance of history and like why it's worth studying. That said, 22-year-old me at the time had really no better answer to the question of why I had done it other than, <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting and yeah, and I, and I wanted to be smart. So yeah. I think in that, in that regard, this whole thing of the oath speaks to a sort of immature approach to intellectual inquiry on the part of people who are young. Well, I, look, I don't want to extend this to everyone who's young and like a student or whatever, but definitely some group of people who are young and intellectually curious, but don't really have a serious direction for what they're doing yet. Right. They're and, kind of dilettantes. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, but I also would go so far as to say that I think where this play, and, and we'll, we'll get more into this later on, but I think one thing that this play also shows up is that, you know, these people, as I think happens with the king and with these three men towards the end of the play, you know, their lack of specificity or understanding of what they're doing doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a reason or that there won't be a reason. You know, I think to some degree this play is about education and to some degree it's about the these people discovering why their, you know, their efforts towards education actually could be important. I don't know. Is that you think that's too generous to the king and his compatriots? Well, I think the irony of the play, in some ways, right, is that it starts by them making this three-year pledge of chastity so they they can study, and then by the end they're falling head over heels in love with the princess of France and her ladies in waiting, and desperate to get them to stay, even though the princess's father has just died and she needs to go home, uh, and they end up having a year and a day to themselves anyway, which, you know, you could kind of hope that they would devote 
more profitably to study <laughs> during that period of time. So in some ways, the seriousness is imposed upon them towards the end, and hopefully they actually will do something useful with that time. Well, I guess, Will, this this is an obvious way to transition into this next topic, which is, you know, we wanted to talk about that final scene in the play and that transition of sort of the tone mm-hmm. of the play. And, and we, you know, let's let's switch back gears in a minute to get into that more deeply. But I do think that the suggestion at the end is that their eyes are opened to more serious things. I don't think it's quite a let's hope that they're going to use that time well. I think the suggestion is even if they don't use the time well, they are at least now aware of the possibility and the importance of using that time well. Yes, I think I think that that's true. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Resolved. Yeah. Resolved. Um, <laughs> so to revert and, and explicate this a little bit more. So the first two, the, the final third of the play, more or less, is this one scene, Act 5, Scene 2, which is the final scene of the play, which kind of brings together all these different threads. And over the course of the play, we've seen these four men, the king and his three, I guess they're sort of grooms of the bedchamber or gentlemen-in-waiting or something Mm -hmm. like that. We've seen them go from making this pledge of intellectual pursuit and essentially hermetic asceticism to falling in love with the princess and her three ladies-in-waiting to then, at the end of the play, they have finally resolved to abandon their oath entirely and go woo these ladies. And then, in the midst of all this, a messenger arrives from the princess's court, I guess, back in France, to tell her that her father has died. And her father, at the very beginning of the play, there's one line which says that her father is sickly and decrepit. And so when this messenger appears, she understands immediately what has happened, and it completely transforms the tenor of the play in those last, you know, 20 or 30 pages. So prior to this event, you know, prior to the announcement of the king's death, I I pretty much was feeling dismissive of the play. Essentially, Mm. I thought it was frivolous and unimportant. I didn't really understand why we were reading it or what we were supposed to get out of it. And it felt like that, basically it felt to me like the, the entire point of it was that thing we talked about previously about just being about Shakespeare's desire to play with language and find a story that would allow him to do that. And then my sense, and I I can talk more about this, but I want to hear your thoughts first, was that this moment really transformed the tenor of the play and also really the meaning of the play into something more serious. Mm. And so I was wondering what your thoughts are on, on what meaning we're supposed to read into the play in how this transformation and this moment of the announcement of the king's death transforms what we've read before. I think the message of the play, particularly underscored by the death of the king, and really without the death of the king, you almost don't get it at all, is that life is short and it's a serious thing at points. There's a lot of joy to be found in all of the verbal gymnastics. Uh, and showcasing that Shakespeare engages in earlier in the play. But the death of the king underscores this question of whether these men are really serious. The women are willing to give them a chance. 
after they've realized the vanity of their initial pledge in some ways and have sort of overcome their own stupidity and ridiculousness. And now it's clear that life keeps on moving. And if you actually care about these women or love them, uh, you have to sort of rise to the occasion. Uh, that's which... Can I can I make a, a, a corollary point to that? Mm-hmm. Which is, I, I think, yes, and... Part of what happens here is that the revelation of the death of the king really strips away a lot of the artifice of it. And we discover that the princess and her ladies, who who throughout have taken a very mocking tone towards the entreaties of the men, they basically say, oh, we thought this was all in jest and you were making fun of us. Mm. And the, the event of the king's death forces the men to more directly say what they mean and the women to take those statements with the seriousness and gravity that they deserve. So I think this seriousness also results in a in a revelation of not just of what's important and what's not important or what's serious and what's not serious, but also points up that also calls for the stripping away of the obfuscation or a stripping away of the fear, right? The men are fearful of the women's reaction. That's why they, presumably why they come clothed as Muscovites, right? I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm going on a little bit too much, but I think the point that I'm trying to make is the way that the death and the attendant shift to seriousness results in, in people really laying their cards on the table. You know, the king at hearing that the princess is leaving says the extreme parts of time extremely forms all causes to the purpose of his speed and often at his very loose decides that which long process could not arbitrate. You know, sort of saying that this, you know, that this forces us to say plainly and quickly that which previously we were sort of talking around. Mm. The princess in talking about them not believing their sincerity says, says, first says of the men, to her ladies-in-waiting, the effect of my intent is to cross theirs. They do it but in mockery merriment, and mock for mock is only my intent. So that's a little bit earlier where she's saying they're not serious, and so we're not going to take them seriously. And then later on, in this moment when this artifice has been stripped away or where everyone's speaking more plainly to each other, she says to them, We have received your letters full of love, your favors the ambassadors of love, and in our maiden council rated them at courtship, pleasant jest, and courtesy as bombast in his lining to the time. But more devout than this in our respects have we not been, and therefore met your loves in their own fashion, like a merriment. And the implication to me is we didn't take this seriously, even though earlier on in the play, the princess and her ladies-in-waiting, when they first arrived, seemed very open to love. They haven't taken it seriously. And now they're going to give it an answer that it deserves, which in this context is the answer of, let's see if you're serious or not. Right. Well, in in some ways, the prank that they play on the men, where they all wear masks and switch the favors that the men have sent them, uh, you know, pearls, a necklace, an amulet, something along those lines, to sort of create a mistaken identity bit, 
that's almost to underscore that the women are sort of seen as interchangeable by the men. They're not really taking this seriously I'm, as a uh, bunch look, of relationships. I, so I read the Harold Bloom essay in his book, Shakespeare, The Adventure of the Human. And he sort of makes this point as well, where he, he makes the claim that the scene with the women in masks exchanging favors is meant to show that the men aren't actually serious. I really object to this reading. I, I, and I, I find it very difficult to lend that reading credence. I think within the world of the play, we have to accept that the, the women masked and exchanging favors is convincing to the men and the men's entreaties, right, the, the men's entreaties are still directed towards the woman that they claim to be in love with. They're just addressing it to the wrong woman, which is the whole point of the, right, of the so, prank. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I, I think that there are two things going on here, right? There's the men who I think... You're right. I think the exchange of the favors, the jewelry, basically, to the women makes the men think that they are talking to the woman that they chose to pursue, right? So in that sense, I agree with what you're saying. I think it more underscores that the women see the men as trying to pursue them interchangeably in some ways. I think it's sort of a sign that they are trying to have a laugh at the men's expense, uh, oh, because yes, they sort yes, of don't yes, think highly of the men, right? They, yeah, it's they don't believe that the men's they don't believe that the men's protestations of love are genuine, and therefore they're not treating them as genuine, right? They are responding to these declarations of love on the same level of discourse that they believe that they're being offered. Does that make well, especially because especially because the men are showing up dressed in. Russian garb to woo them, right? You know, under the different identity, there's there's sort of matching what they perceive to be the level in which the men are operating, right? Yeah. Well, I, um, I think in this regard, it it I think it reflects pretty accurately on the way these things happen in real life, right? I mean, I think you know pretty often people don't say what they mean because they're afraid of being rejected, and then they. And then the, whoever they're addressing doesn't take their... People take what you say on the level at which you give it. I mean, not that people can't see behind the statement, but I think often they don't, right? They take you at your presentation, not at what you want to say, but are too afraid to say. Right. Well, this is sort of what makes Baron an interesting character. And I have a little piece by him that indicates this shift that all the men go to, but perhaps he realizes first. And this is when he's talking to Rosaline, who is his love of the princess's women. Here stand I, lady. Dart thy skill at me, bruise me with scorn, confound me with a flout, thrust thy sharp wit quite through my ignorance, cut me to pieces with thy keen conceit, and I will wish thee never more to dance, nor never more in Russian habit wait. Oh, never will I trust to speeches penned, nor to the motion of a schoolboy's tongue, nor never come in visor to my friend, nor woo in rhyme like a blind harper's song. Taffeta phrases, silken terms precise, three piled hyperboles, spruce affectation figures pedantical. These summer flies have blown me full of maggot ostentation. I do forswear them. And I here protest, by this white glove, how white the hand, God knows, henceforth my wooing mind shall be expressed in russet yeas and honest 
Cussy knows. So that's basically him stating that he's not going to use this artifice and highfalutin language or these schemes and stratagems to woo the women. He's going to be direct, honest, hard on your sleeve, straightforward about it from here on out. And that, I think, is actually a nice little summation of what we've been talking about, is arriving at this point where sentiments can honestly be expressed in a straightforward manner that aren't necessarily any less eloquent for being a little less unadorned or plain in speaking. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And, and in fact, can be much more eloquent, at least in mm. less eloquent, I suppose, in phrasing, but much more eloquent in meaning. Yes, Right. Yes. Like I think, I think the you know the king saying to I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but the king saying to the princess at the end, please stay here, don't go home, is a much shorter expression of his feeling, but feels much more sincere. Yeah. And in that, it is also met in a much more sincere response from the princess, where she says, "I have to go home." I have to mourn my father. You know, my father's dead. I have to mourn <laughs> my father. But also don't live in despair if you prove to me that this love is genuine and not just the fancy of, you know, this two days long encounter. <laughs> then perhaps we will be together, right? Right. Um, I'm not going to ask you to come up to my apartment, but give me another call sometime and we'll talk, you know? Yeah, uh, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Which is is in some way a very charming and more adult way of thinking about these things than uh, the expectations. I mean, I will say I'm not exactly impressed by the king's behavior at the end of this where he is imploring her to stay despite knowing the fact that her dad just died. That seems... A little ridiculous, though I guess there's probably some subtext there that, you know, might be kind of escaping me. But, it, you know, it doesn't come off terribly well, but she meets him with a very serious and earnest response. And I think he takes that up earnestly instead. So uh, I, I, you have to kind of give a little bit of credit where credit's due. Well, I think it—I didn't read that as being negative on the king. I read it as being, as being the sort of desperate— plea of please don't go you know like i I read Mm. i read it as more plaintive and and true unconsidered in its plaintiveness but Mm. nonetheless a heartfelt and i and i guess that that really is where i think the dividing line in this play will be is to what degree you think you know that you think the men's and the women's frankly affections are heartfelt or not and I guess that is, maybe that's an interesting place to wrap up this portion of the conversation, Will, is, is how heartfelt do you think they are? Yeah, I, I think it's an open question in some ways. I would like to believe that they are sort of undergoing a, a real education, and that's one of the ironies of the play, is they start out with this inchoate idea of becoming scholars and achieving fame by forsaking women and the world. But by the end, they conclude that love is part of their own education and growth as people. And so you don't necessarily have a definitive answer. The play does not end with the women coming back and all of them marrying as a worse play might have ended up. 
it leaves it an open question, but you're hopeful and perhaps a little bit more optimistic. But it feels like it's optimism that's earned over the course of the play. It's not a fairy tale ending. And for that, I like it a lot more than the other comedies we've read. Yeah, and I think the the I mean, this becomes almost a comedy of right. I think I think if this play had ended where everyone got together, it would have felt pretty fake. Yes, right. It, it would not have felt realistic. And and I guess we'll see, right? Like we we have more of the really I think high, could I call them the high performance comedies coming up? Mm-hmm. And it, and yes. it'll be interesting to see reading those if we feel like there's more realism in the relationships. Mm. But it, it certainly doesn't feel reading the, those first four acts and one scene like like that it, like it can logically result with the four men and the four women getting together. However, I do see a thematic unity to it in the men starting out as pursuing this basically vain education and resulting, having actually learned something, one, more important, and B, rededicated themselves to a more real type of education. So one thing about this play, it is not performed very often. There have been a few adaptations, you know, I don't think it was really performed much at all in the 19th or 18th centuries, uh, a little bit more in the 20th and 21st, but, but not all that much. And some of that I think is due to a lot of the allusions in the play or to people and places that don't really translate all that well. There's a lot of odd, topical, almost pop cultural references to famous songs of the day, the equivalent of top 40, you know, minstrelsy, I guess, at the or minstrel songs in the in the era of uh, Shakespeare. And um, well, also, Will, I think uh, you, you can tell me if you disagree, but I think part of the a corollary to what we discussed before about Shakespeare's extravagance of language here is that the poetry ends up being even denser, I think, than some of the other plays we've read. Yeah, it's a little less uh, patter, and I mean, there is some patter that's pretty funny in here, but there's a lot more extended wordplay by single individuals speaking for page after page, which doesn't exactly lend itself to um, to really winning depictions on the screen or even on the stage, especially when the language can be a little dense. But that sort of brings us to Casting Corner, because... There is at least one adaptation I know, and I think you may have watched it recently. In fact, Uh, Will, did I watch it recently? I watched it last night in preparation (laughs) for this podcast. Excellent. Uh, So yeah, there's a Kenneth Branagh version, which came out, I think, in the early 2000s. 2000, Uh, yeah. Not only in the early 2000s, but in the earliest 2000. I don't think the movie is that good, but I was very interested in his approach to adapting it, which I, I think betray like he definitely thought about how he wanted to do it and Mm. like how it would make sense it's done as sort of a rogers and hammerstein type musical set immediately before the outbreak of world war ii with navarre being seemingly a client state of france so you get throughout the film these references to oh war is going to break out soon what's going to happen but in the meantime there's all this frivolity going on in the king's court and to what you were saying, Will, about all the references to songs of the time, he also engages with that directly in having it be literally a musical, right? He's, he uses these 
I believe they are real songs of the era. I don't think they're they, written for this. I film. think they. I think they are. I looked up a clip, and he has "Cheek to Cheek," which I think is a Cole Porter song. So a lot of like American songbook kind yeah. of hits of the '30s and '40s. And so there's these song and dance numbers, some of which have a bit of a Bugsy Berkeley feel to them. And then, of course, at the end of the play, the one, you know, it's sort of in the turn to seriousness that we talked about. There's the announcement of the death of the King of France, and the implication is that the death of the King of France is what kicks off the war. And and then there's this whole postscript, which is just a montage sequence, which depicts the war, and then everyone gets back together at the end. So so Branna does buy into the happy mm. ending version. So I felt like, it, it, to some degree, it mirrored my reading of the play, and I think it reflects where the play is strong and where the play is weak, which is I was really not with it in the first four acts. And then once that turn happens, I Mm. was with it. What I don't feel the movie does as well is the recasting, that sense of recasting the entire first four acts and earning the transition. Tonally, that last section felt better and more serious and more real to me, but it didn't feel thematically connected to the rest of the movie in the way that I do feel like the first four acts are thematically connected with the last act in the play text. Interesting. So let me let me ask you this, as we sort of think about Hollywood Corner on the show, how would you recast this to, not just with the people in the cast, but how would you reshape this play for modern times? And do you think it could really work successfully? Because there have been a couple movies where celibacy pledges that come undone in various ways are at the center. But how would you adapt it in a way that might translate well today? So my idea, I think, would result in a little bit more of a satirical approach and would be very 2020 or very, you know, very of this current era and might not outlast the next couple of years. But my idea of how to do it was, Will, Silicon Valley is a very fratty <laughs> culture. <laughs> my idea is that you have the men in the play be basically a successful startup, but not a super successful startup. And they're going, pro- probably they're all going to business school in the way that people in tech will go to business school to like further their careers. And the king is the CEO of his startup, and he's negotiating an acquisition with the princess who is the heir to some gigantic tech firm. Like, she's the heir of Bill Gates or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that, that way you kind of bring in both the political side of things and the negotiation while also having that... A, the kind of the fratty idea of the play. And I, and I think that a lot of the King, Barone, Longueville, Dumaine stuff is also about the way these male relationships reinforce themselves. And there's a little bit of competitiveness in it. <laughs> and also, you know, you can sort of see the, where the education thing is. Now, I think where the, where the parallel might fall down a little bit is whereas in the play, it's all in service of this undefined intellect. My version <laughs> would be much more about the career advancement. What do you think? Yeah, I think that could definitely work. I mean, the other the other alternative to say business school or something along those lines is 
they have a hackathon or one of these startup houses as depicted in the show, uh, Silicon Valley, an incubator, right? Where they're supposed to cloister themselves in the world to develop their product by coding, you know, at crazy rates. And they're not supposed to go outside. They're supposed to order in. I could totally see that also being the way in which they end up cloistering themselves and dedicating themselves to their to their advancement or the advancement of their company or product or whatever. Until FaceMeet is completed and launched, we will not <laughs> interact with women. Yes, one could, one could easily see that to be the case. And who could blame the women, shall we say? But yeah. So that's my indeed. that's my pitch for the modern satirical Silicon Valley adaptation of Yeah, I like it. Films. I mean, I there is something here that could really work in that sense. And I actually think it can translate a little bit better to the modern day if you dispense with a lot of the Shakespearean language, incidentally, which maybe is the attraction for Shakespeare. But the the actual plot, you could really easily transfer to a variety of settings. I think it could be pretty funny. Agreed. Will, should we move to ranking the play? Yeah, let's do it. Actually, can I make one other observation Mm -hmm. to the question of whether the men are really sincere in their feelings? I do want to note that we will never know because there was a play that Shakespeare wrote called Love's Labors One that is now lost. Now, we do not know, you know, what the plot of that play was, but it doesn't feel that unlikely that it is the sequel to Love's Labors Lost, or at least that is what I am going to assume because I want to believe that there's a sequel to this play in which we see the resolution. And the answer seems to be in the title, no? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe one of them wins, but the others don't. Maybe maybe Baroon and the King win their love's labor, but Longville and Dumaine are left out in the cold. Who knows? You have to have you have to have some conflict in the play, right? So Exactly. Ranking the play, Will. What do you think? Where where do you place this in our rankings? Okay, top of the comedies for sure, by category, which is more of an indictment of the low quality of the other comedies we've read, The Two Gentlemen of Rona and Taming of the Shrew. I think it's better than Edward the Third clearly worse than Richard III and some of the Henry VI, the two parts of Henry VI that I think we liked the most, which are parts one and two. Uh, So that's about where I'd put it. I'd say it's solidly middle of the pack. Interesting. So above Comedy of Errors, below Henry VI, part one. Oh, I've forgotten about Comedy of Errors. I would say better than Comedy of Errors. Okay. So for you, that's going to slot in at number four, Will. I'm updating our spreadsheet as we speak. Interesting. So I'm... I'm going to offer a pretty scaldingly hot take here, Will. Are you ready for this? And I have, I'm, I'm ready. I tormented myself last night as I was thinking about this question, as I was debating where I was going to place this play. And I wasn't sure if I had the guts to do what I'm about to do, but I decided that I do. <laughs> so definitely, definitely above the bottom half of the plays. So it's, it's sort of a question of where you put it relative to Richard III, Henry VI's parts two and one, and Comedy of Errors. As it relates to Comedy of Errors, I think there are two moments in Comedy of Errors that are funnier than anything in this play. I think in its thematic unity, this play is definitely better. I'm referring to the uh, the fat joke section and the, <laughs> and the my gold section of Comedy yes. of Errors. Yes, yes. <laughs> Here's the thing. Richard III remains number one for me. Yes. But I was thinking about this in terms of the other two Henry VI plays. And here's where I landed. While I really enjoyed Henry VI Part II as an overall reading experience, 
I think that there is a level of grace in the final act of Love's Labor's Lost that renders mm. it more human and more profound than anything in any of the Henry VI plays. I don't think that it is as good as Richard III. I don't think it has the psychological depth or the entertainment value in reading it. But for me, Love's Labor's Lost right now is number two. Wow. Wow. I, uh, yeah. I mean, I... Let me put it this way. My feelings are not strong enough about this one to vault it up there, but I see your case and uh, I, re- I respect the ranking. In hearing you talk about it, I think I'm willing to bump this one above part one of Henry VI, but not above part two. Fair enough. I'm, gl- I'm glad I was able to move you at least a little bit. And Will, finally, before we wrap up, who do you think was the MVP of this one? I think the MVP of this play is probably Barone. I think he undergoes and models probably the purest form of the evolution in a positive sense that the play is meant to show. He was the most skeptical of the pledge, but went along with it because of his bros. But he was skeptical of it for good reason. And he ultimately has the clearest expression of what's actually important in life and in love. What about you? So I had a tough, tough decision for me on this. And I think it embodies that endless, I don't know if you, how much you like sports, Will, but I feel like it embodies the endless MVP debate in sports of peak value versus career (laughs) value in that I think pound for pound, moment for moment, line for line, our motto is the most entertaining character in this play. However, it's important to me to be consistent, and I recall when we were doing this exercise for Henry VI Part Two, I did not choose Jack Cade because I thought his I thought his, the role was too small. So I will go ahead and agree with you that it is Barone. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, our motto without our without our motto, the play is considerably less funny. I would say. So James, non Shakespearean recommendations. What are you reading or watching this week? I have two recommendations for our listeners. So book-wise, basically my quarantine reading is Bleak House by Charles Dickens. You may have heard of him. Bleak House is extremely long. It is 990 pages. That said, it really moves in a way that you don't think of 990 page long novels moving. And I also have to say, and this is not the first time I've experienced this reading Dickens, it takes a little while to get into, but he's incredibly funny, one. And two, I think that though he's talking very specifically about things of his time and place, I feel like there are very clear corollaries to our world. So like the whole basis of Bleak House is this law case that is just dragging on for years and years Mm. and years and consuming endless resources and basically driving to bankruptcy every party involved in it. And in our world of hair trigger litigation that often costs more money than than the actual <laughs> settlements would ever result in. It felt pretty relevant. And then the other thing that I was going to recommend that's a little bit more highbrow, or maybe I should say a little bit more impenetrable, is a couple nights ago I watched Solaris, the Tarkovsky film from 1972, uh, which is kind of one of these high-end sci-fi films. And while it's very slow and very contemplative, If you are a cinephile, it is definitely worth watching. I'm still trying to figure out what I think about it, 
but there's some amazing stuff in it. Awesome. So what are those recommendations again? So that's Bleak House by Charles Dickens and Solaris, directed by Andre Tarkovsky. And that's our show. Next time on Bard Flies, we kick off Shakespeare's second tetralogy with Richard II. Thanks for tuning in to Bard Flies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, share the show with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bard Flies on Twitter and drop us a line at Bard Flies Podcast at gmail.